You are listening to the District Church Podcast. To learn more about us, find us online at districtchurch.org. Happy New Year. Happy Epiphany. January 6th is actually Epiphany. Um, it's, a, it's a key holiday um, and season in the life of the church. Christmas is when we remember that Jesus came. But Epiphany is when we remember when Jesus was manifested or revealed to the world. It's sometimes called Three Kings Day because it's when the wise men uh, came bearing gifts uh, to Jesus. So my prayer and heart for you in this new year is that God would manifest and reveal himself to you in a new way, in a deeper way in 2024. Amen? Amen. Hey, I want to welcome um, those who are new as well and uh, just believe that God, it's not a mistake that you're here, that God has you here for a reason. And uh, we pray that District Church would be your home with us in 2024. You need to look no further. God has a plan for your life. We believe that God's put something in you uh, that's for this church and for this city. And uh, this is a place where you can be real um, about who you are, real about your struggles, and still be loved. Amen? Amen. For those who call District Church home, is that true? Amen. You can be real about what's going on in your life and still be loved. And we all need a place to belong where we can grow in Christ. Amen? Amen. So um, we, we're picking back up in Ephesians, which you heard Pastor Kevin read our passage today. And uh, we're talking about walking worthy of the call that we have received. And last week, Pastor Stuart McAlpine uh, gave a brilliant halftime talk, a locker room talk in between the two halves of Ephesians. Encourage you to check it out online. So grateful for him and his wife, Celia. But Paul begins in verse one. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This word, therefore, is right here in between the two halves of Ephesians. Whenever you see a therefore, you have to understand what it's there for, right? So it's there because the first half of Ephesians is about doctrine and the second, or belief, and the second half is about action or practice. And so, so Paul has spent three chapters saying things like, you are a child of God. And now in the next three chapters, he's going to say, start acting like one, Amen. right? For three chapters, he said, you have been saved by grace. And now he's going to say, walk worthy of your calling. He spent three chapters saying, you are children of, you've been delivered out of the darkness. And now he's saying, walk as children of the light. And see, our identity and our action are always more linked than we think. How I see myself is connected with how I act and behave, right? Even with little things like on the basketball court. If I believe that I can dominate, and shoot like Steph Curry, then I'll probably play with a little more confidence. Now, maybe that will be bad confidence, but at least I will see myself as a basketball player. If you walk in here and you see yourself as worthy to receive a word from the Lord, you're more likely to show up in church, to be engaged in the message, to take notes, and then discuss it afterwards because you see yourself as loved and worthy to receive a word from the Lord right? So, so doctrine and practice always go together. What we believe matters. And Paul's point here is that life change, which is all what we're wanting to get to is life change. That doesn't happen when it's built on false beliefs. Amen. 
So we have to examine our beliefs and build it on a good foundation. And one of those foundations is the unity that we find in Christ. And this is what Paul is saying, that God has called us out from the world. He has called us to be set apart, to be holy. And, and he, he, has, he has gathered us together in one family across all of our differences, Jews and Gentiles. He's brought us together. And so, so the question is, if we really believe that, then the question is whether we will manifest that unity in our practice. And unity starts with our collective calling. It says, walk worthy of the calling that you have received. And I think in D.C. today, many of us have very successful professional lives. Whenever we hear the word calling, we immediately go to our profession, right? To our career. That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's not that it can't include that, but it shouldn't certainly be limited to that. That's not the starting place. What he is saying is, is that, that there is a, there's a calling that we all share. It's a holy calling. It's a heavenly calling. It's an eternal calling. So put your career and your vocation in light of the collective calling that all of us have eternally in Christ Jesus. If you're struggling to know how to spend your time and how to use the gifts that God has given you professionally, seek in this 21 days of prayer and fasting, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, his eternal calling. Seek first that. And then all these things, your New Year's resolutions that are not bad, your relational goals, your financial goals, your spiritual goals, all these things will be added. Your career, all these things will be added. So, so put it in the right context and seek godly counsel from others who have sought to put their career and their skill set within this greater calling. That's where we actually get the most fulfilled is when we realize what God has created us to do and we do that in context of community with others. Here's a question to consider in light of this walk worthy of the calling, a question for 2024. What if, what if I cared more about who I am becoming than what I'm accomplishing? What a radical countercultural way to live in this city, to care more about who I'm becoming. As, as Pastor Kevin read, my soul finds rest in God alone. Psalm 62.1. Your soul is what makes you unique about you. And nobody can care for it except you. So how are you stewarding? How are you caring for your interior life? And how are you trusting God that as you care, care for your soul, that it will manifest in your behavior, in your actions, right? So today I wanna to talk to you guys about unity in the body of Christ. And this is really the theme for the first 16 verses of of Matthew 4. This week we'll talk about uh, unity in the body of Christ, and then next week we're going to talk about maturing in the body of Christ with the many spiritual gifts that he's given us. So Paul starts out um, appealing for unity and how we relate to one another, and he says, be completely humble. Somebody say completely. <laughs> this isn't like partially humble, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday humble, <laughs> like when I'm feeling it humble. No, he says, be completely humble and completely gentle, and completely patient, bearing with one another in love. 
gentleness, patience, and love. All fruits of the Spirit. I read a cartoon. It was kind of funny this week, but sometimes hit a little too close to home. I don't know if we can put it up here, Um, but there's a a long line here. Um, Everybody's in line for gifts of the Spirit, but nobody's in line for fruits of the Spirit. (laughs) Right? There's, There's a God, God wants to supply both sides, but we need to line up on both sides because as he fills us with his Holy Spirit, may it manifest in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. First, he says, be completely humble. Humility isn't low self-esteem. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Because if you think about yourself less, then you'll have more uh, space in your mind to be able to be considerate of the needs of those around you. But if I'm always thinking about myself all the time, then I can't put the focus or be considerate of other people's needs. Humility is being able to see yourself the way that God sees you with infinite worth, fearfully and wonderfully made. There's a confidence that comes from humility, but it's not a confidence that has you think that you're better than someone else because while you have infinite worth, your worth is no more valuable than the person sitting next to you. And so if I really believe that, then I'll have the space in my mind to not just get all worked up about my own feelings, but to be considerate of what my neighbor might need. Paul wrote this in a time where humility was very countercultural. Humility was despised in the ancient world. It was radical for him to say, be completely humble. And then he says, be completely gentle. The word we often see in the New Testament for gentleness is the word meekness. It's the same word. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness does not mean weak. It means having your power under control. So it's like that war horse that has a bit in his mouth so that he's directed in the right way. Moses, it says in in Exodus, was the meekest man on the face of the earth. But we know that Moses was a powerful man. Moses confronted the most brutal ruler of his day, Pharaoh. He had his power under control control. His power was submitted to God. To be a kingdom woman is to be a meek woman. To be a kingdom man is to be a meek man, or you could say a gentle man. That's what makes for unity. Patience is about trusting in God's timing. Trusting in God's timing. It's waiting for God to act when, where, and how God chooses. Some of you need to hear that for 2024. God, help me to wait on your timing for what you put in my heart. This is often in scripture called long suffering. If you have the King James version, I think it might say long suffering. Because I like that because it it helps describe that it's hard to wait, right? It's hard to wait when you've got annoying people in your life. It's just hard. This is long suffering constantly bothering you. God, help me to exercise long suffering to the person that's bothering me in the same way that you, Jesus, exercise long suffering towards me. Humility, gentleness, patience, they're all dimensions of love and they're all characteristics that yield unity. Can you imagine what your marriage would look like if you were completely humble, gentle, and patient? I mean, I, can, I can't imagine what my home would be like. My kids even reminded me this last week, what happens even when my tone is just a little bit off. Yeah. 
when my facial expression is just a little bit off. They basically told me this week, it destroys the oneness in our family. They were like, I mean, they didn't use the word destroy, but that's kind of how I saw it. They're like, dad, your tone. And I'm like, I, I love you. You know, it's like, but they just picked up on it. It's just a little thing sometimes. And, and I'm just like, wow. Like even as we're worshiping, I got just so emotional. that I, I have sins to confess to the Lord. How I want to be a better father. How I want to be a better husband. How I want to be a better pastor. Jesus is our defender. He goes before us. He wins the victory. Humility, gentleness, and patience are not only important in the home, but they're important for us as a church body. Especially as a diverse church body, we have people coming from all different backgrounds. And one of the things that happens when you have different cultural experiences coming together is you have a whole different set, diverse set of expectations that everyone has based on their culture, their family, the church maybe that you grew up in. How is leadership going to be structured? How are we going to do titles? Do I call him just Aaron or do I call him Pastor Aaron? You can call me either one, by the way. But the point is, is that based on our cultural experience, you might hear somebody just call me Aaron and think that's disrespectful. While another person thinks, wow, I have a close enough relationship with the pastor to be able to just call him by his first name. Right? That has, that's, or, dip, or even how we, have t- how we do time in church. Some of you are like, it's almost 1230. We've been here an hour. Are you wrapping up? Like, I got a lot of things to get to. And some of you, we're going to take communion later. We're going to be worshiping. You're like, what? We're going to end service now? Like the spirit is like breaking out. God's about to do something. You're just going to cut it off? Right? We have different experiences and expectations. And Paul is writing here to a really diverse church in Ephesus, a major cultural and economic center with people from Asia and all over the world. It was a multicultural church of Jews and Gentiles. And these folks had different views of the world. Sort of like Republicans and Democrats coming together in the same church body, right? Imagine if that happened. Two very different views on what the top priorities of the country should be. Different narratives about what went wrong and what our future vision should be. And then these topics come up, whatever contemporary issues come up, and it's a test of the depth of our discipleship. It tests the depth of our unity. Over the course of, we've been around for 13 years, over 13 years, just being in our nation's capital, there's been times when we have politicians, sometimes prominent politicians, come worship with us, where there's a a decent-sized portion of the church that disagrees with their policy platform. And it's a test of discipleship to be able to greet this person, to be able to have communion right behind this person. It requires patience, humility, and meekness to think I can learn something from somebody who I fundamentally disagree about certain issues with. It's a challenge in those moments to practice what Paul teaches in the New Testament epistles, the one another's. How do we love one another, be considerate of one another, to be a welcoming place? And that's not just politically. That's easy to talk about because our nation's so polarized politically right now. But it, but it, it happens in other areas. James chapter 2 says two people walk into the church. One person who's rich and dressed well and one person who's poor and has dirty clothes. 
And he says, you sit the rich person up front and you put the poor person in standing room only section. You've made distinctions that you're not supposed to make in church because God doesn't look on the outside like we look. He says, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith? They might have even more to bring to the body of Christ, but you already judge them based on how they look. Our diversity tests our unity. And, and it's easier to, for us to talk about unity when we're here for an hour and 15, 20 minutes on a Sunday. We can celebrate, oh, we have a diverse church. But the real test of our unity is what happens in a life group that's really diverse. Or what happens in your friend, when you're in each other's homes and you're hanging out and you're like, wow, we celebrate our diversity, but then things kind of get hard. Like, what if the political director from the camp, the opposing campaign of your political party shows up in your life group? Talk about a test of discipleship. Assuming their faith in Jesus is sincere and yours and everybody else's faith in Jesus is sincere. The question is, the, the test of discipleship is, do we have more in common in our faith in Jesus, our love and desire to know his word and apply it to our life here? Do we have more of that in common than we have the differences that exist in the world? I'm tired. I'm tired of the church reflecting the culture and us coming together and complaining and reading the news and saying, we're all divided in our country. We're all polarized. How about we practice unity right here and offer the world a different vision of what we could be like? Let's walk in the spiritual authority that God's given us. We're not just taking the temperature of Washington, D.C. God has placed us in this nation's capital to set the temperature, to be the thermostat. You can change the atmosphere of a room. And I'm tired of Christians coming into politics. Their, their politics are coming into the church. Politics coming into the church. What if we had more Christians that went into politics with their feet firmly planted in the gospel and in the church and in his truth? We need our faith to shape our politics, not our politics to shape our faith. And, and statistics confirm what I'm talking about, that the reality is that there's a great sorting that's happening in churches today all across America. And what it's revealing on both sides, just as much as pro for progressives, which dominate a, a city like DC, that our politics come before our faith. All the research is confirming this. It's a challenging word for us. Can I manifest gentleness, humility, and love enough to learn from somebody who has a different background from us? Church unity must be a key theme for us in 2024 in our nation's capital. Because if God can bring together Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot in the same group of 12 disciples, one who's trying to uh, collect taxes for the empire, and the other who's trying to overthrow the empire. If God can do that among his 12 disciples, God can do it right here in our church in 2024. Paul says, make every effort, verse three, make every effort to keep the unity. Somebody say, keep the unity. Keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. This might be the most important part of what I say today. And I'm really just repeating what the word says. It says that we are to keep the unity. It doesn't say that we are to create the unity. Pastor Stewart said this 
last week that unity is not something that's organized by us, but rather organized for us. God is the one who creates unity. What we have in our church is a work of his spirit. And the question is not how do we get unity, but how do we lose it? People ask me all the time, how, you know, what did you do to have such a diverse church? People from different nations, black, white, Latino, Asian. And this is when it's tempting for me or any of us to launch into like a five-step recipe for how to have a diverse church. The problem with that is that then it puts the focus on us and our leadership and what we think we did in a way that we think we can take credit. No, it's a work of his spirit. We didn't do anything to create it. But let me be very clear. There's plenty of things that we could do to lose it. So the Greek word for keep, for keep right here is the word terio, T-E-R-E-O, which means to guard and to protect. That's our job, is to guard and protect the unity that God has already brought to the church. That's why Paul says, make every effort, right? That's why I need you to pray for us pastors. I need you to pray for the board, the overseers of the church. I need you to pray for Minister Crystal Thomas, who directs our multicultural church work, because it's not easy. Amen. And the, it's not about creating anything. God's, doing, God's bringing the people. God's bringing all you guys. And we're saying, bring your whole life, bring your whole story. But the challenge is, are we gonna stay submitted to Jesus as the Lord, as the head of this house? And when that happens, beautiful things happen. Seriously, God begins to get the glory. And you start seeing different cultures display their love for Christ. People not having to apologize for their accent or for their style, but you begin to boldly sing and dance and lead. It's a beautiful thing. How good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity? And I'm going to talk about this more next week, but unity does not come at the expense of truth. Sometimes people think, water down the truth, then you get you. No, 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 that's not what it is. Unity is a work of the Spirit. And when Jesus is not Lord among the people, it's very likely to go wrong. That's what politicians are struggling with right now in almost every country of the world, particularly in the West. How do you maintain unity amongst diversity when Jesus is not Lord of all the people? University presidents are struggling with this right now. How do you have unity among the donors and the trustees and the board and the, and the student body, right? It's scary. It's scary to have so much diversity. But what is so encouraging is when you see it visibly expressed in a church body, it becomes a sign and a wonder for an unbelieving world. People walk in, they say, how does that happen? How do you have such a diverse life group? How are you always hanging out with me? Like you, I know enough of, like you would never, like in college, you would have never hung out with this crowd in college. Like what, what is it that like, these, like these people are like your genuine brothers. Are, like you share all of life together. You share your possess. I mean, where did that come from? You know, let me tell you about a man named Jesus Amen. who was gentle and humble and loved me when, when, when I was judging him. <laughs> he pursued me. That's, Jesus is the one that enables me to exercise that same love. Paul says, make every effort. It takes work, guys. 
effort to keep the unity through the bond of peace. And then Paul gives us seven reasons where to keep the unity. And every single one of them starts with the word one. (laughs) Makes it easy to remember, right? There's seven of them. And what's beautiful about this is that Paul breaks it down based on the Trinity. So verse four is the spirit, verse five is the son, and verse six is the father. So verse four, one body, one spirit, one hope. Verse five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse six, one God and father of all. And notice that all seven of these reasons for unity are about God. Most of our problems today in the world exist because we start with ourself. We're focused on our own needs first. And this is what sin teaches us to do. It teaches us to put ourselves at the center of the story and then to orient everything around our own lives. That's why our theme this year for 21 days of prayer and fasting is seek first. And this is something that we struggle with in the Western world, honestly, because we've been taught to revolve everything around our own life. And then if we're successful and economically prosperous, then we'll use our leftovers to help other people. That's not how it works in God's kingdom. We seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then we trust him for all the other things, the desires that God has put in our hearts, which are good desires oftentimes, but we trust him to put those in their proper place. Sin exists because we start with ourself rather than God. Paul wants to remind us it's not about us. That's why he starts off. He says, there's one body. There's one body, one body of Christ. And what happened in the church in Corinth where he wrote another letter is that there's these factions that just started emerging. One, one group said, I am of Paul. And another one says, I am of Apollos. And another one says, well, well I am of, of Cephas. And, and Paul was like, you're not of any of these different flawed human leaders of which I'm one of them. You are of Christ. You are in Christ. You are in his body, the body of Christ. Every single one of us, every, every single one of you has a part to play in the body of Christ. Even those who might consider themselves or we might consider the weakest part of the body of Christ. You just walked in today, first time at church. I don't have a part. No, you have a part to play in the body of Christ. Not a mistake, not some random Google search that led you here. Spirit of God moved you and brought you to this place today. You are part of one body. Somebody say one body. It's a supernatural work what God does. Taking us out of the world, placing us in his body. There's one body, there's one spirit. Many evil spirits, but there's only one Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out, revival breaks out. And one of the great fruits and evidences of revival is that there's a oneness among the people. This is what happened in the book of Acts at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's poured out and it says the early church had all things in common. They met today daily in the temple courts. They shared what they had with each other. It wasn't forced, it was voluntary. There was a sweet oneness that got the attention of the unbelieving world. When we see lack of unity in the church today, it's, it's primarily because there's too few people that are convicted of sins. Like sin, sin might, like all we talk, it's nothing wrong with talking about the sin in the world because systemic sin is real. You walk out of these doors and you confront it. Particularly if you have a certain background, you just confront it daily even. So that, that's all real. But if we only talk about that and we don't talk about the sin in our own hearts, that we're all prone to wonder, that we all struggle with this original sin thing, that we're part of the problem then what will happen is we'll begin to reflect 
the world. When, when, when the spirit falls and revival breaks out, no person can take credit. No leader can take credit. It's a supernatural work beyond anybody's giftedness. This is what leads to the oneness, that we're all the same before God, that we're all needy before him, and his one spirit unites us. The third reason for unity is that there's one hope. It's interesting that he puts this one hope in a larger context than the other two. So he says, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. So the context is is calling. It's what we're called, the collective calling that we all have, the eternal calling that we all have. And see, that's what we have to place unity in the context of. Because when you have diversity as an end in itself, you usually have pretty dreadful results. Like when you only focus on diversity, that's the only thing. And you just focused on that all the time. If, if you aim at diversity as the main and only end, you will usually get disunity over time. Ironically, churches that value diversity the most and talk about it all the time, oftentimes become the least diverse churches. Uh, the research confirms that. What Paul is saying here is that we experience this amazing diversity across all of our differences that we, we celebrate our differences in our background, but ultimately what we celebrate is the one big thing that we have in common. And that one big thing is the eternal hope and the eternal calling that God has given each of us. You guys tracking with me? I got some blank stares right now. So either I've gone too long or you're wondering if it's okay to say amen next to your neighbor and not get canceled at lunch afterwards. I don't know. Um, so verse four is about Jesus, uh, I mean the spirit. Verse five is about Jesus, the second member of the Trinity. He says, there's one Lord. This is really about our submission to Jesus as Lord. He is the head of the body. He is over all things. And, and we can't function properly if Jesus is not put in his rightful place. And so when we allow Jesus to be Lord, there can't be factions and divisions because Jesus is one. He is indivisible. He's fully God and fully human. So, so there's, there's one Lord, there's one faith, not multiple faiths. Jesus didn't say, I am a way and a truth. He said, I am the way and the truth. And we have to be bold enough to share the clear teaching of scripture when asked. I was in a space this week with about 20 other people here in DC where I was asked whether I believed that was true. And I knew nobody else in the room shared that belief. The Holy Spirit gave me the courage to, do, to say that in love. That, it, I, I, that our Christian faith is not ultimately a you do you and choose your own adventure kind of thing. Like it's, it's true for me and the way I understand scripture is that Jesus is the only way to God. He's not like one of many ways, right? There's one road that leads to God and it's through Jesus Christ. It's not through the road of our good works. It's not the road of our own effort. It's not the road of outperforming our neighbor. It's not faith plus something else. It's not faith plus works, faith plus circumcision, faith plus your policy record, faith plus your academic record or clear background check or your employment history. No, it's faith in Jesus plus nothing. We are all equal before God, equally sinners and equally saved by his grace. 
one faith, one baptism. We baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it represents that we now belong to Christ. Before we belong to the world, but now we belong to Christ. Baptism is not what saves us. It's what it represents, and it represents that you are united in Christ. Before you were in Adam, that is in your sinful nature, but now you've been called out of the world and the desires of the flesh and, and allegiance to the enemy and all his tactics. That old life has been crucified, dead, and buried. You have renounced sin and all its evil desires, and you have been raised to new life in Christ. That's what it represents, and it's powerful. And Jesus didn't just recommend baptism, he commanded it. And I'm praying and hoping that 2024 for some of you in this room is the year that you get baptized for the first time in your life to publicly proclaim your faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. It's a big celebration here. Some of you have been deferring it for many years and just putting it off. But I believe, I want to believe that we'll experience a record number of baptisms right here in our nation's capital this year. Amen? Amen? The final verse He goes and he says, there's one God and Father. There's one God. He ends with Father. And the question is, why does he end with Father? Because when we talk about the Trinity, we usually start with Father. It's usually Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why does he do the reverse? Well, Paul is brilliant here. He understands, he describes it in how we experience the Trinity. That we, we experience the Spirit of God and the Spirit always leads us to Jesus. You can't say Jesus is Lord without the Spirit of God working in your life. So the Spirit brings us to Jesus, and Jesus always takes us to the Father. He always wants to know what's on his Father's heart, right? And and so everything is really about God. And when we want to have a picture of unity, look at Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The perfect example of unity. Diversity, and yet unity. And so he is our Father. It doesn't say just there's one God, but he says, He's our father, meaning we all have the same father. We're all in the same family. That's a pretty cool thing to have a revelation of that you're a daughter of God. You are a son. And because of that, you don't have to relate to God as like some distant person who's angry with you, but you can cry out and you can just say, Abba, father, daddy. You can be real about what's really going on in your life and know that you will still be loved. He, he won't have that hateful tone that our human fathers too much, too often have. There's one God and father of all. And then he says, who is over all, meaning he's over all creation. He's over the church, he's over the world, and he's over the ruler of this world. And he's through all, meaning he infiltrates every part of the church and he sustains it by his grace. And then I love this, how he ends. He says, and he is in all. It's amazing to have the revelation that Christ is in me. Jesus says it this way in John 14. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, who's the we? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We will come to him and make our home with him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Paul says in Ephesians 1.10 that God's primary purpose is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's what unity is. Sin is the opposite of that. Sin leads to division and factions. It's a disruptive force. It divides us from God and from one another. But the central mission of Jesus is to unite. It is to bring unity between us and God and us and our neighbor. So district church, let us make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. May we be a visible witness to a polarized world that people who were once enemies in this world can now live reconciled lives in Christ, in his church, under the lordship and banner of Jesus Christ.